I drove down to Northern California a while back to visit my dad. My mom, Lucy, died a couple years ago, so now my sister and I try to see the old man as much as we can. He seems to be doing okay, making the major adjustments slowly, but keeping up his routines that give him some kind of stability and comfort. We were worried about him at first. When Kim and I showed up after hearing the news about my mom, we walked into the house and there was Dad at the breakfast table, sitting alone in the silent house. He was having his lunch, using a chocolate biscotti from Costco to spoon tuna out of the can and into his mouth. Just shock, probably, we thought, envisioning some mighty interesting future meals. So my sister Barbara and I have been taking turns going down and seeing him, making sure he's not eating frozen peas mixed with kibbles and bits, or turning into Ronald Reagan. To get a more complete vision of my dad, close your eyes and imagine the skipper from Gilligan's Island. Got it? Okay, now for his speaking voice, imagine Floyd the Barber from the Andy Griffith Show, combined with the awkward, strained, and chopped speech pattern of William Shatner. It's always been surreal being around him. He's a very strange person. He believes that the rest of us should be able to read his mind, and that makes for colorful conversations, such as, Where'd she put it? Who? The key. What key? Who? Water, water, water. What are you talking about? Your mother, kid. Oh, what key? To the grandfather clock, kid. Jesus. Mom, she kept the key? I'm confused. No, jeez. Your mother used to wind the clock while I was out watering. We had two keys. Now I lost one of them and I can't find the other one. Aren't you listening to me? Jeez, the seal, where'd you put it? I think my mother's resting peacefully. So I showed up at Dad's house this most recent time after driving for 10 hours. I walked in, we chatted for a few minutes, had a couple of cocktails, and seeing how it was about 8 p.m., I asked what the plans were for dinner. He said, Well, I thought you could cook something. I told him that I just drove 10 hours to get there, and if he thought I was cooking, he could go get fucked. You're taking me out, I told him. We started calling a few places to see what was open, and it turned out every place in paradise that didn't cause extreme intestinal distress was closed on Mondays. So I got in a damn car, went to the damn market, and shaking my head and muttering myself the whole time, cooked our damn dinner. Before going to bed that night, my dad said, Oh, okay, 10.15 tomorrow, we'll go to the produce market. I'm usually an early riser, but dad lives basically in the forest. Very quiet. When I visit down there, I've been known to sleep till someone wakes me up. Can you wake me up by nine if I'm not already up? I asked. He said, sure. And the next morning, I was awoken by a fist beating on the door. A quarter to ten, Jimmy. G- get up. Quarter to God. Oh. So I raced around and was ready by 1025. Dad was all in a dither. We jump in the car, got down to the produce market, a tent set up in a parking lot of a church, and Dad leapt from the car, clearly agitated. It was 10.30 a.m. and 105 degrees, and I don't do heat. We approached a small group of old folks gathered around a woman who was seated. R65322, she said. That's me, a blue-haired, doddering granny delighted. She proudly handed over her ticket stub to a woman running the raffle and received a head of iceberg lettuce. Granny beamed. Shit, we missed it, Dad said. Oh, I didn't know there was a raffle, I said. Kid, I told you, 10.15. In the past, I would have pointed out that by him saying produce market at 10.15, well, that doesn't automatically explain to me that there's a raffle that my dad wants to go to at the produce market at 10.15. But I let it go. 
Last week I won potatoes. The next little exchange that we had, standing out there broiling on asphalt under a raging sun, really stands out in my mind as one of our great father-son moments. Here it is. All right, kid, here's $20. For what? Get whatever you want. Uh, I don't want anything, but thank you. Get some fruit. But I don't want any fruit. For breakfast. Oh, well, you see, that that's what you eat for breakfast. It's good for you. At least get the zucchini. Zucchini for what? For the a casserole. Jesus, kid. I'd like to start a band called Jesus, kid. Three months ago, I found some of my grandma Bess's old recipes in a box we took from her house when she died several years ago. Over the next couple of weeks, I cooked a few of them and had told Dad about it. One of the meals was a zucchini casserole. When I told him I'd cooked it, he grunted, and that was the end of it till now, I supposed. I deduced that this was what he was on about, this casserole I'd eaten and digested 12 weeks ago. Are you talking about Bessie's casserole? Yeah, you can cook me that casserole. Well, <laughs> a couple of things. First, I haven't exactly committed that recipe to memory quite yet. Sorry about that. Second, had I known you wanted me to cook you Bessie's casserole, I would have made it a point to bring the recipe with me. Sadly, though, it's 500 miles away from here in a box on top of my refrigerator. Dad furrowed his brow and squinted into the sun. Well, then what are we doing here? And that was my thought exactly. Before Kim and I moved into this house we own, we lived in a little pink rental house off Highway 26. Like literally 25 feet off it. The cars went by all day and night, and the din never let up. Never. It was really enough to drive a person apeshit. Eventually I convinced myself it sounded like the ocean, and then I was okay again. When we decided to move away from Little Pink House, which is how it was referred to by us, our friends and former tenants, I had the unfortunate assignment of cleaning out the basement. This wasn't like a real basement, though. It was just a brick room underneath the house with a bare light bulb coming out of the ceiling. More like a root cellar or something. So we'd have band practice down there, freezing our fingers off trying not to stand in one of the many puddles of standing water seepage that pooled around on the concrete floor. This cellar was also the only storage the house had, so all of our stuff was down there for the year and a half or so we rented the place. I'd look at those boxes of stuff once in a while. The sides beginning to break apart from the dampness and moldering. You could have pushed your finger right through the cardboard after a few months. The fungus growing over the labels. In the heat of summer, all that green rot turned to a white chalky powder. Then when the rains came back, it turned green again. So I'd look at those boxes. And I'd ignore those boxes. But in the back of my head, I knew that sooner or later, I'd have to deal with them. We had a room in another house we rented that we called the Meat Room. Apparently, someone who'd previously lived there used the room to gut and carve up deer he'd shot, and he stored his venison steaks in that room, too. Something went wrong in that room. Floor to ceiling, it was covered with a green and white oatmeal-looking fuzz that reeked of death and toadstools. We kept the door locked and didn't go in there. Scared. But back to the cellar at Little Pink House. After all my denial and my ignoring those boxes, knowing how nasty they were, I was now faced with moving and actually having to clean the place out. And I wasn't real bubbly about it. 
My friend Eric kindly agreed to help me with this filthy task. He lasted all of two minutes. That's when the spiders made their first appearance. They came seemingly from everywhere. Everything we picked up or turned over. Mostly black widows with bodies the size of a human knuckle. Eric, who's deathly afraid of insects of any kind, bailed out and left me on my own down there. A good man in a tight corner. Eric went upstairs and sat in the kitchen while I worked below. I could hear him apologizing through the heat vent above my head for the rest of the afternoon. I was left down there sticking my fingers into dark corners full of rat shit and cold sticky paste that I couldn't begin to identify. By the end of the day I was covered with spiders, their tight meaty webs wrapped around my face, neck, and arms. Not my favorite day. But this story is really about the cheese. The carpet cheese. After getting all the boxes moved into our new place, I showered all the grossness off me and hit the hay. And I had a dream. In the dream, Eric and I were cleaning out the basement. We were just about through when we noticed there were a couple of big rugs rolled up and standing in a darkened corner. Eric said, Oh, wow. I'd almost forgotten about that. What is it? I said. This, he said, unrolling one of the carpets onto the cement floor. There, in the center of the carpet, was a gooey, grayish blob about the size of a baby. It looked like a runny chunk of tainted ricotta, marbled with thin black stripes. The carpet cheese, he said. And suddenly, as it will happen in dreams, I remembered. Eric and I had been talking about how the carpets used to get soaking wet after the rains at my music studio in Southern California. The carpets would grow mushrooms and fungus. So applying the same principle, Eric reckoned that if we poured milk and cream onto some area rugs and stored them in a wet, cold place for a while, we could make our own type of cheese. A carpet cheese, if you will. He scooped up a fingerful and smelled it. It smells all right, he said. He tasted it. How is it? I asked. His eyes started watering ever so slightly, and he said, Kind of tangy, organic, but I think it's pretty good. So I put a dollop in my mouth. It tasted like a slice of Kraft American cheese mixed with bathroom sink scrapings. Apparently unable to contain himself, Eric dug his hands into the dank and runny center of the foul cheese and began shoveling fistful upon fistful into his mouth until his chin was dripping with it. Boom. I shot up from this dream, already running to the bathroom, with my mouth agog and my jaw locked, everything absolutely poised for a radical chunder. After a few minutes, I stabilized and somehow managed to not. But I tell you, I ate no dairy at all for two years. I couldn't. I just couldn't. I think it was a smoked Gouda that brought me back around. Not too moist, not too smoky, just nice. That's one nice cheese. I was just sitting here lamenting the fact that Tower Records doesn't exist anymore. Shoot, I love that place. I used to love going over there and browsing the DVDs and magazines. I hardly ever bought music there, which I'm sure was the problem. No one was buying much music there anymore. They were downloading it, burning it, or buying it somewhere much cheaper. That's what all the DVDs, magazines, and Family Guide dolls were all about. They weren't moving much music product. I'm as guilty as anyone else. 
but Tower was really one of the only places I ever browsed. There were just a lot of interesting things there. Now that Tower's gone, if I want the new season of The Sopranos or something on DVD, my choices are Best Buy, Fred Meyer, Borders, Barnes & Noble, or someplace like that. Those are not places conducive to browsing, as far as I'm concerned. Those places are crowded, brightly lit, full of mass hysteria, and I want to tear the teeth out of my head and flee moments after walking in. I guess the new reality, which ain't so new, is that if I want something, I'll just order it online. Takes about two seconds. You can just scroll through and get what you want. You can pretty much get anything you can think of and have it at your house in a couple of days. As convenient and simple as that is, there's something kind of sad about it, too. Hey, check me out, everybody. It's like the future. I can get anything I want. Anything I can dream up. Here in my bleak little room, all by myself, in further isolation from my species. Oh, sweet Jesus, help me, Mommy. I'm going to die forgotten and alone, surrounded by a wonderful collection of music and films. So yeah, I'll miss that Tower Records. It popped in my head that I'd written a little thing about Tower a while back, so I went rummaging through the files, and sure enough, there it was. So here it is. December 12th, 2005. Tony Orlando waved at Kim and I today. See, what happened was, a couple of weeks ago, I was up at Tower Records. I noticed a flyer sitting near the till. It read, December 11th, in-store appearance, Tony Orlando and Don. No way, I said to the guy behind the counter. Really? Really, the guy said, smirking ever so slightly. Dang, I was already there. Of course, if you're 35 or over, you probably recall that Tony Orlando and Don had those very poppy, high-calorie, monster friggin' hits in the early 70s. Tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, knock three times, Candida, Sweet Gypsy Rose, and a bunch of others. They also had a primetime TV show that was on from 1973 to 1977. Goofy as all that stuff was, I still have a soft spot for Tony Orlando. I grew up with that guy, after all. He entertained my family and I for several years on Saturday nights. And Don, well, no slam to the very attractive Joyce Vincent Williams, but back then, Telma Hopkins was about the hottest woman I'd ever seen in my young life. I was thinking those kind of thoughts about her at the tender age of eight, and I didn't even know what those kind of thoughts were. I just knew I had to make her mine. So this morning, Kim and I stopped off over at Elmer's for breakfast. I've had it with that place. The service is really great and the people are very nice, but the food stinks on fucking hot ice. I'm going to Denny's next time. Then we popped over to Tower. I had a fantasy vision of what this event would be. I figured that most people who would be there to view TOAD would understand the camp of the event. I guess I wanted to see a bunch of 45-year-old transvestites dressed like Don, throwing roses and blowing kisses at Tony and the girls as they were paraded through the store. I don't know. I like the simple things. And don't think I'm dissing Mr. Orlando at all. He's a heck of an entertainer. But the bottom line is, his act is and always will be cheese whiz. He probably understands that better than anyone. So anyway, I was hoping for at least a modicum of gong show wackiness. But no, it was disappointing from the get-go. No bitter, burned-out, sarcastic jackasses like me there to praise-slash-poke-fun at the Tony. Mostly a lot of older folks, potato-shaped. There was a long line of these Devo video rejects wrapped around the store. It turned out TD and Don were not going to be performing after all. They were just there to sign autographs and CDs. Oh, rats. The employees were having a giveaway to keep the people in line amused. They were giving away small posters of the group and handbills about the tower appearance. 
I was standing near the guy giving the prizes away. A man walked up to him and said, Hi, what are you giving away here? The giveaway guy leaned into the other man's ear and quietly said, A bunch of shit. Oh, no, no, this was not how I wanted it to go at all. Suddenly, there was canned fanfare music, and a rousing, toe-tapping version of Tie a Yellow Ribbon began to play. A pre-recorded voice announced, Ladies and gentlemen, will you please welcome Tony Orlando and Dawn. The strings came up, the back door of the place opened up, and the music swelled. This was walking on music, by God. This was going to be quite an entrance. Then the music just sort of petered out and stopped, and there was silence. People looked at each other. Nothing at all continued to happen. Everyone just looked around. This was my favorite moment of the event. I love when everything goes wrong. When any production, big or small, runs amok, it's such a thrilling feeling. Something's gone out of control. Awkward moment. Awkward moment. Someone's getting yelled at for this. Or better yet, fired. <laughs> I love this. I savor it like a fine wine. I guess I'm just glad it's not happening to me for once, because Lord knows I've been at the other end of everything going wrong on stage. After a small eternity of nothing happening, the fanfare music started over. From the beginning. That was kind of sad. All the wind was taken out of the sails. But this time, when the announcer asked us to welcome Tony Orlando and Don, they came out. The three of them waved and smiled, and everyone clapped for them. One woman at the front of the line was very excited. She was about 65, and she shifted about like she had ants in her pants. I thought she was really going to decorate the cookies right then and there. When she saw Tony, her eyes got wide, and she started waving frantically. Hi, Tony! Hi, Tony! Hi, Tony! Then as Tony passed Kim and I, he waved and said, Hello, how are you? We smiled and waved back. Then the group was ushered up to a table, handed Sharpies, and the big photo-op autograph session commenced. Should we bail? I asked Kim. Yep, she replied. As we exited out the front door, I must admit I took one last longing look at Telma. She still looks real good. Nine twenty-five zero zero, traveling in Assisi, Italy. Kim and I stopped at a wine bar in the center of town about 9 p.m. We'd had a couple and were getting ready to leave when the restroom door opened and out came a priest. He looked like a skinny Spencer Tracy, but with a Jerry Lee Lewis pompadour. He immediately spotted us as non-Italians and struck up a conversation with us. Father Sean was his name, an Irishman from Dublin. He went into this rapid-fire, non-stop rap about all the joys of this life that were given to us by God. Normally, if someone does that, I run screaming. But this was cool. Something about that accent, I guess. And the fact that he was just a man totally captivated by the Holy Spirit, like Robert Duvall in The Apostle. He wanted to smoke his pipe, so we went outside. If you can imagine the scene, Kim and I sitting at an outdoor cafe table in this gorgeous, moonlit Italian piazza with an Irish priest who's taking pulls on his pipe drinking his tea and expounding on the New Testament, like something out of a storybook, you know. I kept expecting Bilbo Baggins to leap out from behind a pillar and click his heels in the air. We talked and shivered in the early fall chill. I could never begin to skim the surface of all the stuff he told us, traveling the world, sharing the word of God, living in non-Christian countries and trying to convert the folks to Christianity, 
never being tired because of the power of the spirit inside him, being in foreign countries and partaking in the local customs, like drinking Turkish coffee and smoking hash so as not to offend his gracious hosts, and on and on. Crazy, inspiring stories, each one punctuated by quotes from the scriptures and lots of sentences that began with things like, Hi, Seamus, do you know what Thomas did at the Last Supper? Seamus is James in Gaelic, incidentally. Anyway, the long and the short of it was he was a total freak, but completely cool. He'd visited Assisi every year for the past 20 years, and all the locals knew him. He'd baptized a bunch of them. He talked and talked for about two hours, and he showed no signs of stopping, so Kim and I made our move to politely bail. We asked him if he could marry us right then and there. He giggled and said he couldn't because of the red tape in Italy and the fact that we should really take it up with our own diocese. Yeah, I'll get right on that. We got up to leave and he stopped us, and he said although he couldn't marry us, he wanted to give us his blessing. He put Kim and my hands on top of one another, shut his eyes, and gave us a beautiful blessing in Latin. There we were, two Americans in this beautiful square in Italy, in front of a thousand-year-old church backlit by orange light, being blessed by an Irish priest in Latin. It was amazing. Kim immediately started crying. She couldn't stop the tears, and she went to take her hand back and wipe her eyes, but Sean wouldn't let her. He just kept pressing her hand on mine. Then with a kindly twinkle in his eyes, he said in his brogue, Lovely. Fantastic. Tears of joy, Seamus. Tears of joy. God be with you both. 92600. Still in Assisi. This morning, in my bad Italian, I tried to ask this Italian kid who lives in the hotel where we're staying where I might find a laundromat. The kid was a dead ringer for Danny Partridge. Red hair, freckles, squat fireplug shape. I found him disturbing. A lavateria automatica, I asked him. He said there weren't any in town. Then he brought me outside into the garden. The gist I got was that I should just leave the dirty clothes out by this table and his sister would do them for us when she came back at 2 p.m. That sounded weird to me. I tried to tell him I'd be happy to do it myself. But no, I was to leave the clothes and they'd get done. No, my sister, he said. He waved his Danny hands in the air with a we're done talking gesture. So I left the clothes on the table. I hope it's not all on fire in the street when we get back tonight. We had a great dinner at this little place down a back alley. It was like being in someone's living room. Then, walking back through the piazza, we bumped into our close personal friend, Father Sean, who proceeded to talk our ears off for another hour. Not sure exactly what's changed between last night and tonight, but we decided that Sean's a colorful chap and all, but the guy's a bit of a windbag. 92700. Assisi. We got up early and walked down into town to finally check out the main attraction, St. Francis's Basilica. The place was amazingly beautiful, as you'd expect, but man oh man, poor old St. Francis. 800 or so years after he's dead and gone, and these locals are selling the guy like Pepsi. Pretty much turned my guts. It's supposed to be a holy place, right? With all these holy people making pilgrimages here, right? They come to worship and pay respect and all that. But they just can't leave town without a Francis nightlight, thermometer, apron, snow globe, and a hundred other pieces of shit. Give me a break. Is anything sacred? Oh well, we leave Damani. Walking back through the piazza, we once again ran into Father Sean. Shit, Kim, there he is. Walk the other way. Seamus! Seamus! Busted. We only had to hang with him for a few minutes, thank God. Then we spent the rest of the day trying to chase down bus and train tickets, autobus and treno biglietto, to no avail. Lots of walking, though. End of the day, walking back through the piazza. Seamus! Seamus! Oh, God, it's Father Sean. If we were smart, we would have figured out another route through town, but the whole place is on a hill, so we'd be climbing around all the ding-dong day. 
Anyway, now Sean wanted to introduce us to an older couple from Australia, just because they speak English. Lovely. Fantastic. You should get to know one another, friends. Good grief. He's trying to pair off the people who speak the same language like Noah with the animals. We had nothing in common with these people, and it was more than apparent that the four of us were just waiting for that correct moment where we could all say ciao. Father Sean fucked off to five o'clock mass, and after a couple of minutes chatting about what a bloody loony Sean was, the Aussies and us were all shaking hands with a nice to meet you, see you in the next life, and bye. Bless Sean's heart, though. 92800, en route to Cortona, Italy. Last night we had a pleasant meal, and then of course a toodles chat with that leprechaun burr under our saddle, Father Sean. When we said our final goodbyes, Kim and I were walking away from him down a long cobblestone alley, waving. Sean stood at the top, framed beneath a stone archway, and silhouetted with orange light and mist behind him, waving at us. It was like something out of Song Remains the Same. That's how I want to remember Sean, instead of being irritated at the thought of the guy. Later, I discovered in the last two days that I really like amaretto. Three glasses I had yesterday, sweet and flowing, like almond honey. Lovely, fantastic, as Sean might say. Believe it or not, there was a time, years ago, when Jay Leno was funny. I mean, really funny. This is way before he hosted The Tonight Show and became the smarmy knob he is now. He was great back when, though. One of the hardest working comedians in the business. He toured constantly and packed him in. And like I said, really funny. He was on Letterman one night back then, and I remember him talking about a recent visit to his parents' house. He'd given them a new TV and VCR. He was watching a show with his folks, and his father got up from his recliner to change the channel. He said to his father, Dad, why are you getting up? You don't have to do that. The new TV has a remote control. Where is it? His father said, ah, I put it away in the drawer. And Jay asked why. His father said, Well, I didn't want it to start a fire. Leno said, Geez, Dad, it's not a phaser for Christ's sakes. And I was reminded of this story today. I'm visiting my father in Paradise, California. In paradise, time stands still and every little thing is a problem. This morning, Dad asked me to change his clocks to the right time. I hadn't noticed till he mentioned it, but every clock in the house was wrong. It was like an Italian train station in there. So I set about the seemingly simple task of changing the clocks. The bedroom clock, the oven clock, the microwave, and so on. It was around noon. I just finished changing the final clock, synchronizing it to www.time.gov calibrations. Yes, that's how obsessive I am when purely by coincidence there was a giant boom and all the power went out. It sounded like a shotgun went off outside the kitchen window. A blown transformer or something. We sat in silence for a moment, then my dad said, What'd you do? It took me several minutes to convince him that it wasn't my fault. There was no correlation between me adjusting the clock button on his Kenmore microwave and the great paradise blackout of 2007. Since we had nothing to do, we went to the movies for a couple of hours. Turned out it was really only a 10-block radius or so that had lost power. The juice was still on in the rest of town. That was probably a load-off for Dad, who I think continued to harbor nagging suspicions that it was his idiot son who caused the outage. We went and saw a night at the museum. It was all right, although Ben Stiller's still not funny. When we returned, Zeus had seen fit in his wisdom and goodness to restore power to my father's house. 
but now the phones didn't work. Dad said, shit, kid, I don't know what you did, but the phone lines are out. I took a deep breath and then blew some very frustrated air from my nostrils. I'll call AT&T, I said through my teeth. I asked my dad if he had an old phone bill so I could get the customer service number off of it. I already paid that, he said defensively. And well done, Dad, but I'm not accusing you of not paying it. I need to get the company's number from it. Shit, he said, vanishing into the dark of the other room. A few moments later, he called my name. You see how she had everything in here, he said. He was referring to my mother, two and a half years dead. Uh Uh-huh, I said, having no idea where he was going with this. She had all the bills in the drawers. She had some kind of system, he said. Uh Uh-huh. I said, I had lost all of my big boy words. I got my own system now, he said. Hey, hey, did you see this one? Dad's dining room table was covered with old photos. He'd been going through them, organizing them, and taking a long walk down memory lane in the process. Now he wanted me to walk a few blocks along with him. He was holding a photo of me from about 12 years ago. My hair was down to my shoulder blades. I was wearing a camouflage t-shirt, some kind of exotic shiny vest, and I had a cross around my neck. I swear I don't ever remember dressing like that, but here was incontrovertible evidence. I shuddered. Yeah, how about that? I said, trying to muster a grin of some sort. Hey, here's your cousin, Ron. So do you have the phone bill? I asked. Yeah, it's here someplace, he said, rummaging through the contents of a plastic storage box. He handed me a piece of paper. I identified the customer service number, picked up the phone and dialed. The phone picked up. Hello, you've reached AT&T's customer service department. Please enter your 10-digit customer identification number, then press the pound key. You get someone already? Dad asked. No, it's one of those tapes. I hate that. I want to talk to a person, Dad said. I wanted to shout at him at the top of my lungs. Gee, Pops, not me, no siree. Give me this cold and impersonal HAL 2000 shit any day. But I kept my yap shut. Dad, you can always reach a person by hitting zero. It bypasses all the prompting BS and connects you to somebody. Hmm, he muttered. The customer service person, a very nice woman named Wanda, told me to unplug all the phones and wait 15 minutes. The system would reboot and we should have a dial tone then. I hung up and walked through the house unplugging all the phones. I'm going to take a nap, Dad said, shutting his bedroom door. Twenty or so minutes later, I plugged the phones back in and everything worked fine. When my dad woke up, the first thing he did was check the line. When he heard the dial tone, he said, Oh, good. Thank God you were here, Jimmy. It wasn't like anything I did was rocket science. I just followed current procedures that I'm used to, like most of us are used to. But those procedures are enormous for so many in my old man's shoes. It was a really big deal to him. What would I have done if you weren't here? He said. Well, you would have figured it out, I said. But I doubted that was really true. In order to use the DVD player in my dad's house, it's necessary to utilize three separate remote controls. To get the television set to show the DVD player's picture, there's a very specific protocol of button pushing that's something akin to correctly solving a Rubik's Cube. I figured it out a few years back and typed the instructions out neatly on a piece of paper that I stored in the drawer with the seven other remote controls he owns. Sadly, that sheet of instructions has since been lost in life's shuffle, and now it's only through random hunting and pecking and complete dumb luck that I ever get the damn thing to work. My dad won't even go in the room with the big TV anymore. He stays in the kitchen and watches the little TV. I felt bad he couldn't watch movies, so I bought him a small screen TV with a built-in DVD player so he could watch movies in the kitchen. He said he liked that Reno 911. 
So I got him the first season collection on DVD. I showed him how to operate the DVD player. Very simple, and he seemed excited about it. When I showed up here a few days ago, the Reno box was still sitting on top of the TV collecting dust. You been watching the show there, Dad? I asked. Never have, he said, shaking his head. How come? I said. Eh, too much trouble. Money well spent. Once I tried to show him a little about my computer, how to arrange photos, do finances, and type letters. Technology, 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 he said. My dad always says things three times for emphasis. I made a weak attempt at showing him my iPod. He just furrowed his brow and shook his head. That's science fiction, Jimmy. Money, money, money. Always trying to get you to buy something. He has no interest at all in the internet, though he's forever calling me to look things up for him. It's called P-R-E-D-N-I-S-O-N-E. That's what Dr. Clark prescribed. Can you look that up and find out about it for me? He loves music, so I got him a CD player, but he can't figure out how to turn it on. Even if he could turn it on, he can't get the CD jewel cases open. I gave him a copy of my new disc this morning and sat nearly biting a hole through my lip, trying not to interfere while watching him turn the CD case over and over, pulling at it, then shaking it. See where the spine is? Right there. No, there. It's, it's like a book. Open it like a book, I said from the seat across from him, frantically pantomiming the act of cracking a novel. Strictly for his own safety, we got him a cell phone. He works in his two acres of forested yard every day, and I told him he should carry the phone with him at all time in case he's out there and he needs help. But he can't figure out how to open it. Dad, it's like a... You remember on Star Trek, the little communicators, how they'd flip them open and talk to each other? It's like that. He just stared like I wasn't even there. And it occurred to me then that my father's technology phobia might just be an act of self-preservation. I mean, if Jay Leno's dad thinks his remote control is like a phaser then my dad might draw a similar conclusion if he thinks his cell phone is like a communicator. To his way of thinking, the very act of speaking into it could jolly well transport him to that episode of Star Trek where that creepy little Clint Howard would laugh and offer him a drink of Tranya. Perhaps he ignores my urgings to climb aboard the tech mothership because he's afraid of deep space, interplanetary travel, and all its potentially dark consequences. Could be he's afraid of Tribbles. Maybe he just fears Clint Howard. Anyone in his right mind really should. And it makes me wonder, do Shatner's kids have to deal with this stuff? Clerk number one. A few weeks ago, Kim and I were over at Kinko's. Kim was making a boatload of copies, and I was standing around waiting for her to finish so we could get something to eat. I was of no help to Kim as she had some kind of a system, so I was just wandering around Kinko's. You know what? There's nothing to do at Kinko's unless you have some reason to be there. I started thinking about this song I was in the process of recording at the studio and how I needed to buy a cheap little microphone to get the effect I was thinking of for the piece. Then I remembered that a couple of doors down from Kinko's was Radio Shack. So I moseyed on over. I walked into Radio Shack and, and everything was big. There was a big sports thing on one of the big TVs with big sound. A kid's show on another big TV with big sound. Big movie trailers on yet another big TV with big sound. And the radio was on at the big speaker display. My mind was suddenly wiped clean. Manchurian candidate clean. 
This assault on my head holes completely cleared the little screen in my brain, and I forgot why I'd come in. I stood there for a moment, hoping it would come back to me. Hey, dude, can I help you? I turned around and there was a young man of about 22. The Radio Shack guy. He had the Radio Shack costume on. White shirt, dark slacks, and a tie. He had a wide grin, but something was, I don't know, off about him. Though he was smiling, there seemed to be what I perceived as a rage behind the eyes. He was bobbing his head back and forth and tapping his foot on the floor, like a guy picking a fight. The other thing was, okay, I normally don't care if a clerk calls me dude. Who cares? I am one after all. But there was a contempt in the word when it came from him. This boy concerned me. Just looking, thanks. Still couldn't remember why I was there. I started to saunter away. That's cool. Hey, dude, did you check the race out? I stopped and turned. Radio Shack guy was standing there, pointing at one of the screens, grinning, head bobbing, foot going. Nope. Dude, check it out. It's awesome. He waved me over. Oh, no. What are human beings supposed to do in situations like these? I don't know. I didn't want to watch this thing. And if I did want to watch it, I wouldn't want to watch it with the creepy Radio Shack guy. I looked at him there, waving and grinning. I opened my mouth to give him a reason that I wasn't interested in watching the race, but nothing came out. Come on, Jim, come up with something, something. But I had nothing, nothing. Blank page. So, I slowly walked over there, folded my arms, and stood there at the TV with the guy. It's the Baja dune buggy race, dude. This thing is... Whoa, did you see that? One of the dune buggies had flipped. Sand was going everywhere. This was one excited clerk. Radio Shack guy looked at me and nodded his head. Big old weird grin. Pointed at the screen again. I put something near my lip area that looked like a smile, but it was pretty half-baked. My mouth might have been smiling away, but my eyes were a dead giveaway. We stood there for a bit, and I started thinking about the situation. Now that I was there, how long did I have to stay there? What was socially acceptable? I calculated that I'd been standing there about 40 seconds. Was that enough? Could I go now? Or did it need to be another 30 seconds or so? For some stupid reason, I began to worry that if I left now, it'd be too soon and I'd offend the Radio Shack guy, even though he had already put me in an awkward position when he clearly ignored any privacy bubble I may have had by waving me, a total stranger, over to watch the TV with him. What was wrong with this guy? What was wrong with me that I was standing here? God, I just need therapy so desperately. Wow, I said, backing up and laughing a little through my nostrils. It's a heck of a thing there. The clerk looked at me and the grin slipped. What, you don't want to watch this? No, I gotta go. But what'd you come in for? I don't know. I said this already halfway out the door, headed back to Kinko's. I haven't been back to Radio Shack since. I can't go back there now. No way. Clerk number two. There's a little coffee place near my house that I go to nearly every day. The place is clean, the coffee's always good, and it's generally pretty quiet, which I like a lot. With the studio and the gigs, pretty much everything I do involves listening intently to sound, so I try to keep my regular life nice and quiet when I can. A few months ago, they hired a new girl at this coffee shop. I had to laugh a little when I saw her because she looked like a cartoon rendering of a girl who worked in a coffee shop. Jeans, t-shirt, tattoos, cat-eye glasses, dyed magenta pigtails. The first day I saw her happened to be the first day she worked there. She was very nervous, trying to keep up with the orders, toasting bagels, making the drinks, distributing change correctly. The owner was very patient and helped her through it. It was kind of charming, and I was 
taken back to my own memories of first days on new jobs. And I've had me a lot of jobs. When you've been fired as many times as I have, you have plenty of first day on the new job days. The next day at the coffee shop, the new girl was there. Though there were only a few people online, the poor girl was frantic, muttering to herself, blinking her eyes constantly, and turning wildly in half-completed attention deficit circles. The soy latte I'd ordered appeared several minutes later as a mocha made with whole milk. When I pointed this out to the girl, there were no, whoops, so sorry, comments. She just grabbed my cup from my hand and started making the new drink. It showed up soon after. The order was correct, but the cup was only half full, and the outside was smeared with chocolate fingerprints. I let it go. Poor thing, I thought to myself as I was leaving, but I also suspected that in this mean old world, this kid just wasn't going to make it. Two weeks later, the situation hadn't improved one iota. The drinks were consistently wrong, the mocha prints were on everything like it was her personal logo, and the muttering had increased and morphed into some kind of performance art monologue. Her gesticulations had become like Italian sign language. Any new kid charm this dunderhead may have had was long gone. Around my house, I'd begun referring to this chick as my sloppy barista. So I don't go to that place anymore. I can't go back there. No way. Clerk number three. I was one of the many chumps that bought the iPhone right when it came out. I had to have it. Just had to have it. So I paid 600 bucks for something that was 400 just a few weeks later. Steve Jobs was real big about it, too, giving early buyers of the iPhone a $100 Apple Store credit. Well, at least it was something, right? Everyone else I know with the first phones went online to the Apple site, punched in a few numbers, and got their 100 bucks in credit. I never got mine. Each time I tried to put in my serial number online, I got a message that said, you may not be eligible for the iPhone rebate. No reason. What are you supposed to do with that? When I called Apple, they couldn't figure it out because they said they didn't have my phone number on record. When I pointed out that I paid a bill every month, so it had to be there somewhere, the guy on the other end of the phone said, Yep, it's a mystery. He said at this point he wasn't sure if it was an Apple problem or if it was AT&T's problem. These iPhones, you know, they're an AT&T thing. You have to use their service unless you're MacGyver and you can manage to wiggle around it. And you so want to wiggle because the network they use absolutely sucks. If I'm on my roof in a four-point stance with the phone resting on the back of my neck, I get great reception. Other than that, no. But the pictures move around when you touch them. The Apple guy told me he'd do a little checking around and get back to me. A few days later, I was visiting my father down in Paradise, California. Incidentally, it's not. I was driving around a nearby Chico looking for a CD store or something, anything to do, when I saw an AT&T store. Since I hadn't yet heard back from the Apple boy about the rebate, I thought I'd just pop into this place and see if they could help. It was Saturday morning and the place was jam-packed. Every clerk was busy. After a few minutes, a kid asked me if he could help me. Yeah, thanks. I just have a quick question. Shoot. This iPhone rebate, you know, the $100 rebate for the early buyers of the phone, I'm having some trouble getting mine. So my question is, do I need to talk to Apple about that? Or is it something you could help me with here? You know, one guy I know got 200 bucks back, he said. I looked at him for a moment. I wondered, should I point out to this young man that that was not an answer to my question, or should I just let him finish free associating? I continued looking at him, waiting. He bounced on his toes and repeated, $200. I sighed. So is it an Apple issue or an AT&T issue? I don't know. Hey, Ron? He turned and yelled across the store. From far across the store, an older clerk who was a dead ringer for Dabney Coleman raised his head up above the crowd and looked at my clerk. 
Hey, Ron, can you help this guy? Ron was talking to a little old lady about something. So he smiled in our direction and raised his index finger in what we all know to be the universal symbol for, I'll be there in one minute. Ron, we got a total situation here. What? A total situation? Huh? What was this imbecile yelling about? There was no total situation. There was no situation at all. A hush fell over the store and everyone stopped what they were doing to look. I mean, who doesn't want to see a total situation? So, there I was. A total situation. And I saw me suddenly through the customer's eyes. Big, bald, aging tattoo guy. What is this guy? Some biker? Some convict? I'm aware of what I look like. But it's not as if I was frothing at the mouth, swinging a bicycle chain over my head. So everyone's looking, waiting for a total situation. I had one simple question and suddenly I'm Larry David. Ron then turned back to the little old lady and gave her the one moment please symbol and fast walked over to us. Is there a problem? He said. His fingers twitched at his sides like Barney Fife about to go for his gun. No, sir, no problem, no situation, just a brief question. I stepped in front of my original clerk to let him know that we were all through talking. How can I help you? I began again. This Apple rebate, you know, the $100 rebate for the early buyers of the iPhone? I'm having trouble getting mine, so my question is, do I need to talk to Apple about that, or is that something you could help me with here? Ron looked at me and his eyes got big. You know, one guy that comes in here got $200 back, Ron said. That's what I just told him, hollered my original clerk from over at the rotating earbud display. I walked out shaking my head as the two of them began to rehash the day the guy got the $200 back as if it was the tale of Sir fucking Lancelot. So I haven't been back there to that place. Can't go back there. No way. I don't go out much at all anymore. Where can I go? I can't go to these stores. I don't go to the movies because someone will talk and I'll want to stab him in the neck with a ballpoint pen. The waitress over at the cup and saucer thinks I'm stalking her because I ate there alone two days in a row one time, so I can't go back there now. I can't go anywhere. I ask you, where am I supposed to go? Where is Jimmy supposed to go, huh? Where will Jimmy go? I guess I'll just stay down here in the basement, where it's still nice and quiet. Is this agoraphobia? Hmm, it's not too bad.
shit out of fucking friends. So far away? Yeah, we'll get the shit out of fucking friends.